Thank you for downloading from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Ravi Zacharias and the team at www.rzim.org. Is there a logical answer to someone who claims that there's no moral, uh, universal moral law or code, yet states that they do obey or hold to some morals? When it comes down to morality, is there a universal moral law that everyone has to follow? Or is morality more the product of societies? rules that were created to suppress the instinctual nature in the human heart. Welcome back to Just Thinking. There are many views on the issue of morality, views that are frequently changing. In the resulting confusion, how can a reasonable person arrive at a sufficient answer? And how can we confront the issue of morality or the denial of it with clear logic? Today's program is based around that question and was posed to Robbie Zacharias by a student at Weber State University in Utah. Does his answer challenge your own thoughts on morality? Let's find out. Robbie, it's an honor and a privilege to, to hear you tonight. Thank you. Um, my question is this. Is there a logical answer to someone who claims that there's no moral, uh, universal moral law or code, yet states that they do obey or hold to some morals only out of selfishness though. Uh, for example, someone's killing, attempting to murder their mother. They don't believe universally that it's wrong that they're murdering their mother, but they are going to try to stop them because they don't want them to. Hmm. Is there a logical answer to that? Yes, I believe there is. Objective moral values only exist if God exists. Objective moral values do exist. How do I know that? Would that man say to me that it is morally neutral if I torture a baby? If that man is willing to say that it is morally okay to torture a baby, that it is neither good nor bad, but he just has his personal preference on that kind of uh, existence, then you have to say to him, are you willing to universalize that law so that everybody can do whatever is right in his own eyes? If that happens, life is actually unlivable. So the existential ramifications of the denial of a moral law, I think, is actually unlivable. And if it is unlivable, then it is existentially not in keeping with the metaphysics behind it. So what is wrong then is not the existential problem, it's the metaphysical problem. And you go back to the logic of it. For example, if he is really willing to say that Hitler was not an immoral being for killing six million Jews, then I would have to ask him, why does he not believe in God? Is he going to give me a logical answer to that question? And it'll only go in one of two ways. It'll go in this way. There is too much of evil in this world. Therefore, there cannot be a God. 
which means he's using a morally logical necessary argument which tells him, therefore, there is no God. Or he would just have to say to him, uh, I just have come to the conclusion in my own emotion that there is no such being as God. If that is the case, then all you need to say to him, in my emotion, I have come to the conclusion that there is a moral law. What does he say then? If emotion and perspectivism is all that you have to defend it, you push him one step further. And this is the way I would push it. When Bertrand Russell was asked the question in a debate between the philosopher Frederick Copleston, Copleston said to him, do you believe in right and wrong, good and bad? Bertrand Russell said, yes. So Copleston said to him, how do you differentiate between good and bad? He says, the same way I differentiate between blue and green. Copleston said, but wait a minute, Mr. Russell, you differentiate between blue and green by seeing, don't you? You look at a blue thing, you look at a green thing or a yellow thing, you differentiate. He said, that's correct. He said, how do you differentiate between good and bad? Bertrand Russell said, on the basis of my feeling, what else? Copleston was a nice man. If he'd been standing on the other side of this platform, I would have said, Mr. Russell, in some cultures they love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat them. Do you have any personal preference? <laughs> to say, is there any logical way to defend that there is right and wrong, the answer to that is morality is equally an existentially undeniable thing as it is a logically defendable thing. And to my way of thinking, I don't know how you can live in a world where you universalize the principle that anybody can do anything to anyone they want and it doesn't really matter, there's nothing immoral about it. I just believe it is absolutely unlivable. <clears throat> Good evening, Bravi. Um, my heart really went out to the gentleman, the first man who was right. here, um, because I have a grandmother who joined the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and for 20 years, I, as you said, non-adversarially loved her and witnessed to her and shared with my mother, who's a Baptist, witnessed to her for years and years and years. And yet she died, uh, not repenting, but died in the Mormon church. Uh, so my heart really goes out to this man who has these questions about eternal life after this life. Um, I spent four hours today with our mutual friend, Josh McDowell, and his staff. And I wrote two books with Josh McDowell um, in updating with Don Stewart and him, uh, Understanding the Cults and Understanding the Occult. Uh, at the close of our time, the question came up from today's newspaper of whether we were loving in rewriting these books or whether we are in sin as evangelicals in writing these books. Are we apologists doing a defense of the gospel when we write on all these groups, not just one in particular that was mentioned in the newspaper, but all these groups? Are we loving when we do this? I believe we are and we're doing a defense of the gospel, we're being an apologist, or are we in sin? And if we're in sin with one, then why aren't we also in sin with all? Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Islam, you name it. Why aren't we in sin with all then if we're in sin supposedly with one? 
Okay, appreciate that. It's a very sensitive question in an audience like this, so let me just be careful. I think we want to be very careful when we make such um, judgments that I think are, one needs to be more mindful of um, the inferences that can be drawn. There are three levels at which the same question is answered. Level number one is this, what does it take to know Jesus Christ and to spend eternity with him? That answer is one. Question number two, what does it take to belong to your church as a member? Then you add beyond just the commitment to Jesus Christ, you add something more. For example, now you're in a community of believers. You have to go beyond just the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There are some sacraments that you may enjoy. Or there are some other uh, entailments of being a community of believers. And then the third question would be, what does it take to be a professor at your seminary? Now you add even more. To know Christ, the answer may be in one line. To become a member of a church, you'll add something else. To become a professor at a seminary, you may add a third thing. So I say to you that I think we need to be very clear on the answer to the first one. What does it take to know Christ and to be in heaven? If you have come to him and asked him for forgiveness and received him as your Lord and your Savior, that's what it takes. Do you have to have a perfect theology in the process? If you're willing to say yes, I'm not sure I'd be fully in agreement with that. A theology doesn't have to be perfect in order to attain heaven. The most important thing is that we do not violate the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ has done, for we are complete in him. And I do think, while several people may have several approaches, I can only speak for myself. I go into foreign settings many, many times. All of my ancestors were non-Christians. They came from an Orthodox Hindu priestly background. I just know this, that when I was um, 17 years old, searching for the answer to life, I tried to commit suicide, and I invited Jesus Christ into my life. And that happened years ago. I am only deeper and deeper in my conviction that outside of Jesus Christ, there is no answer and there is no hope for mankind. Every man or woman who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sometimes we have differences in our belief systems. And I think those are not resolved in publicly defacing people or in publicly humiliating another belief. I believe those are resolved in sitting around and cordially talking and examining the source of authority. Because I'll tell you why. The problem is not in what we end up believing. The problem is what is the source from which we believe it. And so in conversation, you examine the source. And an average person that I have talked to, when you see the source and demonstrate why you believe in source, say, and we ought not to believe in B or C or D, they will at least understand what the ramifications are. I am not going to be one of those who publicly tries to uh, embarrass or humiliate a group of people. That's not in me. That's neither my culture, nor my training, nor my belief. I believe in my writings. I will respond in certain ways, but I will always believe that in the ultimate sense, who stands before God and who enters in by God's grace is not my decision. It's the Lord Jesus's and God. He is the gatekeeper of heaven, not me. And I will just let him make that judgment. He will make the right judgment. I am absolutely sure. Some we think 
are going to be there, may not be there. Some we think are not going to be there, may be there. I'm just grateful under His grace that I hope to be there because of His forgiveness and His mercy. And that's all we do. We have to end this program there, but you can listen again by visiting our website at rzim.org and clicking on the Listen tab. Our website is also a great place to find more content that you can read, listen to, or watch on this subject or others. That web address again is rzim.org or rzim.ca for those in Canada. And if you'd like to order this Q&A or any of the others that you've heard on this program, call us at 1-800-448-6766. To order today's series, be sure to ask for the title Weber State Q&A. Suffering, God's silence, the existence of truth. Those are just a few of the topics covered in RZIM's Just Thinking magazine. Editor, Danielle Durant. I'm often encouraged by letters we receive regarding Just Thinking. You never know what one sentence can do in the life of an individual. We've gotten a number of letters from those who are outside of Christianity, but they found something intriguing in Just Thinking and said, I want to read more. Sign up for email delivery of Just Thinking at rzim.org. If you're interested in learning more about our ministry or finding ways you can partner with us, be sure to call us or visit our website. Just Thinking is a listener-supported radio ministry and is furnished by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries in Atlanta, Georgia. 